It's July 25th, 1965, a seminal day in music history. The audience at the Newport Folk Festival eagerly awaited their headliner, Bob Dylan. Now, Dylan had played this festival in prior years. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I come following you. But 1965 was different. With the popularity of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, rock music was captivating the younger generation. But for the beatniks at Newport, folk music was still king. And after four days of artists strumming their acoustic peace and love ditties, out walks Mr. Dylan. In his hand was not his usual acoustic guitar. It was a gleaming, auburn-colored Fender Stratocaster electric guitar. Some refer to this moment as the night Bob Dylan went electric. His first song, Maggie's Farm. And the crowd hated it. You don't play rock and roll at a folk festival, man. Dylan finishes Maggie's Farm to the taunts of 17,000 upset folkies and then launches into Like a Rolling Stone. Once upon a time, you dress so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime And this time, the crowd hates it even more. The clearly shaken Bob Dylan finishes his short set and leaves the stage as thousands of dejected fans head for the parking lot. It was anarchy. Or at least as much anarchy one can imagine from a bunch of stoned pacifists. But backstage, looking on, was a wiry, little-known banjo player in a Boston-based jug band. Oblivious to the commotion the great lyricist had just caused. His eyes shot towards the heavens as he received, as he called it, a divine message. He said that it was like, and I quote, what Christ had to do before mounting the cross. So the gangly man ambled out to center stage. He pulled from his pocket a harmonica and played an improvised version of the classic Christian hymn, Rock of Ages. For ten straight minutes. This man was Mel Lyman. And two years later, he was referring to himself as God and had over 100 ardent followers living on his numerous communes. Including today's guest. Welcome to Was I in a Cult? He's... Tyler Meesom, and she's... Liz Iacuzzi. And today we have... Who am I? I'm Guinevere Turner. I'm a screenwriter and an actor. Uh, and a regular old kind of writer. <laughs> What's that called? <laughs> a book writer. Don't speak. 
One of your co-wrote American Psycho starring Christian Bale. But the, the first, first screenplay, screenplay I wrote was for this film, Go Fish. I had never read a screenplay. I was just with my girlfriend at the time, and we were mad at lesbian movies and how much they didn't represent our lives. They were always about one woman struggling with her sexuality and sadness and isolation, and we were just like, partying with our friends and having like regular drama in our queer community in, you know, early 90s. I was like, write a screenplay. Like, wow, how hard can it be? People walk into a room and they say stuff and they walk out of the room. (laughs) 25 years later, I could say it's a little more complicated than that. Okay, so this story with Guinevere, I totally got into the research of this. I mean, it's got fingers that reach to Dustin Hoffman and Italian director Michelangelo Antonioni and Dick Cavett and Timothy Leary and Andy Warhol and Mo Austin. I mean, my obscure film, TV, art, nerdiness just had a heyday with this. But worry not, I didn't get too deep. Sounds like you may have. And I loved every second of it. (laughs) So Guinevere. Guinevere's from, well... I'll just let her tell you. So I don't feel like I'm from anywhere. I really don't. You know, in the way that someone asks you where you're from, they're trying to understand kind of who you are, what your framework is. And I feel like I'm from the Lyman family. As in the divinely inspired musician Mel Lyman. I.e. the harmonica-playing Newport Folk Festival self-proclaimed messiah. It's usually the lead vocalist who thinks he's God, but in right. this case, it's the, the harmonica, harmonica player. <laughs> but that is not a place. That is a culture and a really specific upbringing. And for Guinevere growing up, that culture was all she knew. My mom and dad were, they say they were high school sweethearts. I think they were really just drinking buddies who fucked a couple times, <laughs> which I think is a cooler <laughs> origin story anyway. Yeah. Um, when my mom realized she was pregnant, she told him and he said, I'll marry you and I'll work at my uncle's company and, you know, we'll have a life. And my mom was like, mm, I'm going to join this cult over here and ditched him. Although at the time, her mother didn't know she was joining a cult because... No one joins a cult. You know, in the late 60s, it was like anything other than the norm, anything anti-establishment. At the time, she was joining a community. The Fort Hill community, to be exact, located in a then-run-down neighborhood of Boston. A watchtower rises from the center of Fort Hill, statuesque, a relic from the original American Revolution. It was... Weirdly phallic. My earliest childhood memory is sitting on a rocking horse looking at this big tower that was in that park. And what does that memory evoke for you? This is going to sound a bit abstract. It evokes the feeling of this is going to be a memory. It evokes the feeling of consciousness, like, I'm going to remember this. I'm like a human being, and this is my surroundings. And in this Fort Hill area of Boston, Mel Lyman and his few followers had taken over several empty, dilapidated apartment buildings. So in Boston, their compound has five houses. They somehow managed to buy an entire block. It was like a hippie commune. How very 1960s of them. Except they didn't think of themselves as that. They were very adamant about not being hippies. They were sort of actually anti-hippie. Which is interesting because they seem to be very... Check all the boxes, (laughs) hippie-wise. Yeah. So the leader was a man named Mel Lyman, who's a musician from Oklahoma, maybe? 
He was actually from California and Oregon, and he also had a stint in New York City, but it was in Boston where Lyman had played in a number of folk bands over the years, including this, the Jim Queskin Jug Band. Here is Mel talking about why music is his chosen art form. See, we're trying to take, like, our understanding or our perception of truth and put it in a form so that you can hear it sensually, like, with your ears. Like, a painter takes what he knows of the truth and puts it on canvas so that people can dig it in a sensual way with their eyes. And music happens to be an ear, ear thing, that's all. Can you dig it? I can dig it. Are you digging it? I'm digging I'm it. I'm digging it, too. But after Lyman's existential experience at the Newport Folk Festival... He leaves the ever-thriving jug band world and writes a very modest book entitled Autobiography of a World Savior. So that kind of tells you a lot about him. (laughs) He was talking about himself. Jesus, these cult leaders are so predictable. Yes, the not-at-all bestseller has one whole review on Goodreads.com. It was probably him. From the grave. Somebody love me, (laughs) goddammit. The opening page of this says, Inspired by Uranus, translated through Mercury, presentation of Neptune, by special arrangement with Saturn, dedicated to you. This dude had a thing about planets. I mean, because of his music, I could imagine that a smaller, groovy press would publish his book. And in addition to his book, the group published a very popular underground counterculture magazine called Avatar? that they would just hand out for free in the streets. This magazine is actually what got Guinevere's mother initially interested in the group. She was handed one of these brightly colored hippie papers and shortly after started working for their magazine. I don't think getting paid, I'm not sure. And then slowly just moved in with them and that was her life. She really doesn't like to talk about it, so it's hard to get information out of her. In 1967... Avatar was labeled by a Boston municipal court as being, quote, obscene and was banned from being sold. In fact, many of the shops that did distribute the paper were also charged with distributing obscene literature. Mostly this was part of Cambridge Mayor Daniel Hayes' celebrated war on hippies. Mayor Hayes, what is your objection to the abundance of hippies in Cambridge? The basic objection I have is the, the amount of them and the fact that they're moving into our residential areas, causing... Um, great deal of disturbance among our permanent residents. I know that they're influenced by drugs. There's no question about it in my mind. And as far as I'm concerned, they're sick. Despite the lawsuits, the Fort Hill Group eventually published 24 of these very unique papers. And guess what? Mel Lyman's face was often on the cover. And his writings on the inside. Like this, clever, 1960, beat poetry. Take it away, Liz. I'm going to burn down the world. I'm going to tear everything that cannot stand alone. I'm going to shove hope up your ass. I'm going to turn ideals to shit. I'm going to reduce everything that stands to rubble. And then I'm going to burn that rubble. And then I'm going to scatter the ashes. And then maybe somebody will be able to see something as it really is. Watch out. Oh, Liz, I can dig it. (laughs) All you're missing is a beret and a smoking cigarette (laughs) and a brick wall behind you, and you'd be a perfect 60s beat poet. Thank you, Tyler. 
I'm going to shove hope up your ass now. <laughs> I can use a little hope in my life, Liz. I hear when it's shoved up anally. It it, it works. It yeah, goes quicker it through the blood system. <laughs> Plus, it's less calories. Totally. Who wants to eat hope? Moving on. Okay. So, with the help of the Avatar, Mel's group started to grow. And Mel... They just saw him as the Lord, the supreme being, kind of like a magical creature, like a Christ figure. He believed that he was God, and he called himself God, and his followers called him God. This is him talking with a reporter in 1968. A lot of people want to tell me that they're God too, man. You know, that's all right. At least somebody wanted to be part of what I said I was. If people resent the fact, and people do, of one individual calling himself God, using that word. Why do you think they resent it? Because they haven't the courage to call themselves that. And then live up to it. That's the hard part. His dogma was more twisted than some. The path that he thought everyone should take is something like this. You need to go through hell to reach enlightenment. It was a punishing philosophy. You have to suffer, and you won't know what's happening, and you need to feel the void. Perhaps surprisingly, his ideology was not Bible-based. It was a mix of Buddhism, like a little Christianity thrown in, a little total gibberish that makes no sense, and this apocalyptic vision that the world was going to end in 1976, and that we were all going to be um, taken in a spaceship to live on Venus. A UFO called some might say. Mel was likely inspired by LSD, of which the adults indulged in often. More on that later. As the Lyman family grew, they fixed up the dilapidated Fort Hill buildings they were living in and soon owned multiple structures. But then the real divine message came to Mel in the form of an uber-wealthy harmonica player, Jesse Benton. Her father was Thomas Hart Benton, who's a very famous social realist painter. Thomas Hart Benton, born 1889, died 1975, an artist at the forefront of the regionalist art movement that came in response to the 1930s Great Depression. And his paintings and murals are actually quite exquisite. His work often depicts ordinary Americans, the working class, farmers, tradesmen, musicians. And this mentality could be what drew his daughter, Jessie, to the Lyman family. She was an heiress. So I believe that they probably, for the most part, sustained themselves in the early days with her money. Her trust funds helped to grow the group beyond the land of Red Sox and Dunkin' Donuts. And soon the family owned homes in Los Angeles, New York, Kansas, and Martha's Vineyard. But Guinevere, she lived on the Boston Commune. They didn't even call themselves a commune. They called themselves the communities. And communal living was tight. I grew up with probably like 50 or 60 kids. In all the properties, there's like a kid's house where all the kids mostly are. All the adults would be like in that different house, like having a fancy dinner and playing music and having deep conversations. We were mostly not allowed to go into the adult houses. Or if we were, it was just to like clean it. And like most cults, there is a certain hierarchy. People who were higher up didn't have to get a job or earn, earn a living. They would just, I don't know, sit around and drink and boss people around. 
Kind of like a shoddy Game of Thrones situation. But with less dragons. And less incest? Possibly. (laughs) Hopefully. Anyway, in the group, the lower echelon people... Worked and had day jobs, come home and stay all night doing acid and freaking each other out, and then get up and go back and work. A lot of people had, like, legit double lives. These laymen would work regular, often white-collar jobs. And whatever money they made, they would hand it over to whoever was in charge of the money for that, that compound. And with this collective money... Buy groceries for everybody. You know what I mean? Just, like, put it into the collective funds for everyone to survive. But the group was still left with little to go around. At various points, were on welfare. There was, like government teas and like a tower of brown sugar that was like as tall as me. I can remember being just like a a random woman taking me and being like, come to the welfare office with me. And then I had to pretend to be her kid. I think most of the adult women did that, but just like grabbed a random kid. But money wasn't the driving force of this group of outliers. They were happy people getting ready for the spaceship. And to buy the time, they would occasionally release a musical album. This is from the Mel Lyman family band, a lovely cover of the Impressions song, People Get Ready. Now, mind you, that was a recording from the Mel Lyman family band, but the vocals were sung by a woman named Maria Moldar. She was heavily recruited to join the cult, but she didn't join. And thank goodness, because had she joined, she may have never later recorded one of my favorite 1970s AM radio hits, Midnight at the Oasis. Tyler's soft rock hard on is just growing by the second with this episode. (laughs) The rock might be the only thing that's soft. (laughs) Midnight at the Oasis Send your camel to bed The Lyman family prided themselves on staying removed from the outside world, but... A crazy seminal thing that happened when I was four was that they allowed a Rolling Stone journalist to come in and hang out with them for a few days. You know, he was like smoking pot and like eating dinner and just being a part of them. But in between the bong hits and the beans, this Rolling Stone reporter would question Mel's followers. Well, everybody who works with me is directly affected by Mel. The community is for one purpose, and that's to serve Mel Lyman. He mainly wants to make people be real, as real as they can. He's just casual and real and and responsive. He can put himself in control of any situation. He's protected almost. Get the image of a father figure. Like the Wizard of Oz. Any man that can look at Mel is God, okay? How do we judge whether he is a benevolent God? And who is there to judge if he is God? Only you, man. And you're going to find that out. When the Rolling Stone magazine came out, they put Mel's picture on the cover. Wanna buy five copies for his mother. Oh, God. (laughs) Here we go. On the cover of the Rolling Stone. Come on. It's from the Dr. Hook song cover of the Rolling Stone. (laughs) On the cover of the Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Wanna see my picture on the cover. Wanna buy five copies for my mother. Yes, he had made the cover. But not for his musical talents. Basically, he just called them a cult and pointed out some of the more questionable things that he witnessed. He talked about this charismatic leader, and I think he made fun of how often people quoted Mel Lyman. 
how there were framed photos of him and, you know, in every room practically and how the women seemed really subservient. Mel was hopeful this was going to be his big 15 minutes of fame. And it might have been, just not how he expected. They were shocked about how they were portrayed and pissed, really pissed. This man, they're just like, he's a liar and he like deceived us and he came in here pretending to be our friend. He sort of made a, drew a hard line in the sand. Like we are not going to engage with these people because they're deceitful and, and they don't understand us and they're just here to make fun of us and prey on us. Some of the kids were in real people's school and they took everybody out of school and I didn't have exposure to anyone but these people. We were raised to believe that world people, quote-unquote, were evil and could poison you. At one point, Mel actually had a wall built around their commune in Boston. Further isolating the group from the outside world. I guess some charismatic leaders can finish building walls. (laughs) So it was really just about we're reimagining the ideas of family and we're preparing for the end of the world because the outside world is so corrupt that the whole world is going to end because we've ruined everything. We were so discouraged from attachment bonding with our biological parents. They weren't a commune filled with intact nuclear families. No, there was just one, the family. Because like all of the adults just had children with everybody. Like people would just be in a relationship for a couple years, have a kid, and then they would, like Mel Lyman has 13 kids with maybe 10 different women, something like that. Now you have communal living here. Do you feel that this indicates that you might be living a life of promiscuity here? We don't believe in free love and free sex, but in the highest principles of love, and that's what we're devoted to. You know, there were dramas where somebody cheated on someone, and there was drama where, like, somebody got pregnant with someone that was in a different relationship. This is a bunch of people in their 20s. (laughs) I mean, of course they're going to have sex and have drama and cheat on each other and have fights, but... It was all very convoluted, but very normal to me. And we would refer to people as married, even though they weren't married. So my mom had me, and then she had my sister with a different father, who's also in the family, and who then committed suicide six months later, after my sister was born. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Why? He was playing a poker game with Mel Lyman, got up from the table, walked into the other room, and shot himself in the head. That is that is all we know. Come on. Yeah, and he was in a relationship with my mom at the time. Yeah, she's pretty fucked up about that. So is my sister. In terms of the cult's hierarchy. There's status, and then there's sort of like lowly people. And my mom was kind of lowly. She wasn't like popular or powerful. And when Guinevere was just four. My mom moved to New York to get a job in finance. And so then I really never saw her. They shipped me to the farm in Kansas. So now Guinevere is separated from her birth mother. Both still in the cult, her mother was working in New York, and four-year-old Guinevere was sent to Kansas to work on the farm. 
Jesse's father, the painter Thomas Benton, had created a painting of a Kansas farmhouse, and he'd sold it for $42,000. And with the proceeds, he purchased an actual farm. A 280-acre farm in Marshall, Kansas. Life imitating art. The farm in Kansas, they were trying to be self-sustaining. So there was all kinds of crops and animals. They basically had a child labor workforce because, you know, we would be in fields from early in the morning until it got too hot in the afternoon. Feeding goats, milking goats, milking cows, brushing horses, feeding chickens, gathering eggs, plucking the headless chickens and pulling out their guts, mulching the strawberry field, laundry, 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 hanging laundry. I feel like half my childhood was hanging laundry and clotheslines, cleaning, 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 vacuuming. Oh, I hated vacuuming. Those big houses and like, you're little and it's like the rug would seem like it was 5,000 miles long and a lot of preserving things for winter. So jars and jars and jars of different things canned because they were really trying to only go to the store for toilet paper or whatever. So like a lot of our clothes were handmade. Just trying to create a way to recede as much from the real world as possible. There was like one huge giant bed that was built across the entire room with bunk beds on top of it and we all slept there. Like, probably, like, 20 kids in a room. But then there were always lots of babies. <laughs> we were just, like, a pile of kids. <laughs> that didn't Literally. have any, any actual, like, parent. Right. You know, so, like, no one person was just looking out for you. And those that were looking out, well, they were quite young themselves. They were almost all, like, in their 20s. They were really young people who are making it up as they went along. And it's amazing that we all lived. Well, I guess you could say that about any parents, right? Yeah, we all make it up as we go along. I have two kids. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) It was such a dangerous childhood. I mean, like, in general, I think in that era, you know, no seatbelts, secondhand smoke, like, that was everybody's experience of my generation or most people's. But then it was extra, you know, knives, machines, axes, so much, like, tree climbing and just being gone in the woods for days and getting bit by snakes. There were wood-burning stoves. And... As kids, we would play a game. We'd be chopping wood, and if you found, like, a really nice piece of cedar, you would say, this is your heart, and you would put it on the chopping block, and then whoever's heart it was, it was their job to grab it before the axe came down. We played it all the time, and then, you know, where the story's going to go is that eventually, like, a kid had all of these fingers, the upper half (laughs) chopped off with an axe. Normally, the family didn't believe in doctors, but in this particular instance... That kid went to the doctor. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) They sent me out to go get the fingers and put them in a bag. Just another day's work on the farm. But it wasn't all work and severed finger collecting. Even though working in fields sounds hard, and it was, it didn't feel like that. It felt like a time when we were all together as kids. When it was quitting time from the fields, we would all get to run and go to the creek. And it was really fun. And there was like a rock you could dive off of. And like, that was like the best part of the day. And singing, singing and playing instruments. That was really fun. Every single person played an instrument. You kind of had to. I played the banjo. It was like music all the time. I grew up singing, like the Big Rock Candy Mountain. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. And all of these 
old folk songs that are not attributed to anyone in particular. Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. With the coyote and the wind blows free. Down in the valley. Mel and his family were still making music. And my love, my love come rolling down. But in addition to making his own music, Mel would make tapes for his followers. You know, essentially mixtapes, but they were like on reels. It was Billie Holiday. Sunday with shadows I spend it all and Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and the Andrews sisters, you know, all sort of 30s, 40s music, nothing that was contemporary at all. The idea was that all of this music meant something, that it was important music, there was a message in it, and so there was an element of it being kind of a test. Like, do you get it? Do you feel the power of this music? And when he made one, then we would have to sit down and listen to the whole thing and uh, write him a letter about what we thought about it. Dear Melvin, we called him Melvin, I really loved the tape, the song, The Breeze and I, reminded me of sitting under a willow tree with the tendrils blowing over me. That is something that I actually wrote. I'm just breezing along with a breeze, trailing the rails, roaming the sea. I remember hearing Ray Charles, I Can't Stop Loving You, and just feeling so moved by it, and for the first time thinking about the power of music. And so to this day, when I hear that song, it reminds me of happy times of being a kid. Mel also had weird rules about films. He had a list of movies he called The Lord's List. I've never taken orders from anyone. As long as I live, I'll never take orders from anyone. I'm young and strong and nothing can touch me. The Lord's List. If they were on TV, we had to watch. So this dude would also like underline in the TV guide The Lord's List movies if they were playing. Dark Victory with Betty Davis, To Have and Have Not with Bogart and Bacall, Night of the Lonely Hunter, and Odd Man Out, Jimmy Cagney, and Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which is Cicely Tyson back in the day. I got a great film education as a kid, like more than most people my age. I know all those movies and all those movie stars and just that whole world. Because that was his generation, I guess. Those movies he grew up with. I'm hard to get, Steve. All you have to do is ask me. You know what you're getting into. It's going to be rough. In between all the movies and the music, they also taught trades to the children. Because what good are seven-year-olds if you can't put them to work? All the boys were trained to be carpenters, and they were just very into, like, building houses and building things, and men doing manual labor, but then being waited on hand and foot while we girls were learning how to make clothes and cooking, cleaning. As girls, we were kind of never allowed to not be doing something with our hands if we were inside. Those houses are full of, like, chairs with, like, hand-embroidered seats and so much embroidery, so much embroidery. For education, there was a schoolhouse located on the compound, except 
nobody was particularly qualified to teach. But the thing about these people, these were like intelligent, educated people, not dummies, but not not very structured. They tended to just teach the kids what they were interested in, which is not a bad thing, except it's not very balanced. So I was like way ahead of everyone in terms of English and words, but in math, I was like at a fourth grade level because I just didn't show an aptitude for it. So they're like, eh, whatever, you're you're not going to need that. Interesting. Because you're going to be here for the rest of your life. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you don't need math. <laughs> I remember one guy, he would just, like it was supposed to be history, but he would just smoke and talk, whatever he felt like talking about. It was totally random. Remember the first page of Mel's book? Inspired by Uranus, translated through Mercury, presentation of Neptune by special arrangement with Saturn, dedicated to you. For an entire year, he just taught us about the astrology of the presidents. Like, both Abraham Lincoln and FDR are Aquariuses, and that's why the New Deal worked. Oh my God, uh, they were stop very, it. very into astrology. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and watch out because your star sign could come back to bite you in the ass. You're very much your sign. Some of it was scary because you could get in trouble just for, like, don't give me that Scorpio rising. And I didn't, like, have my own birthday. It was just a Gemini birthday. And that was true for all the signs. They'd even call kids by their sign. Instead of David, David would be referred to as David Libra. I personally think astrology is bunk. Our personalities come from a combination of nature and nurture, not because I happen to be born in November. Such a Scorpio thing to say, Tyler. Sure, said the Virgo. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just the stars telling this group what to do. They were really into the Ouija board. And they had spirits that they would talk to. And they had logs of what those conversations were, like books and books and books and books of these conversations. And as kids, we were only allowed to talk to one spirit. She was like the kid's spirit. Her name was Phaedra. And so one time, Phaedra said that I was lazy. <laughs> I was not, you know, obviously someone was just fucking with me, but um, right. <laughs> but I like was devastated that the spirit had told me that I was lazy. I was like five. And I just remember, like, running around the house, like, emptying every ashtray and cleaning it and, like, just being like, I'm going to prove to Phaedra that I'm not lazy, I'm not lazy. So Guinevere is living on this commune in Kansas. She's a hardworking preteen, trying to live by the rules, purely in the hope to be good enough to have the spaceships come and take us to Venus, which is about honesty and like knowing yourself and being humble and kind of like shape-shifting best self thing, you know, with a 60s flavor to it. Remember when Mel said that the world was going to end? Well, on January 5th, 1974, he told all the children to put on their best clothes and wait for the UFOs. This was the night the world was going to end. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. So he did the standard cult leader excuse and blamed his people for the world not ending. He said the group wasn't ready and that they would need to start from scratch. When the world didn't end, Mel Lyman said we were going to start the calendar at zero. 
It's very confusing because I have these diaries when I was a kid and it says like 00, 01, 02, but it's actually 1979, 1980. So when the world didn't end, Mel said, we're not going to acknowledge daylight savings time anymore. I don't really know what the logic was. So for half the year, we'd be like world time in our time. And the rules tightened. The rules were kind of ever shifting. As kids, it was shut up, be quiet, don't lie, stay out of the way. They could be particularly cruel. The punishment was often being shunned. Nobody's allowed to talk to you. People would be like locked in a closet for like an entire day. There was a lot of that kind of punishment. They tried to make us have a year of silence. And it didn't last that long, but there was at least like a month where we weren't, nobody was allowed to talk, not the adults or the kids. But sometimes the punishment was physical. We would get up to go work in the fields really early. And so it would be chilly. And then as the day got hotter, you know, we would have layers and we'd take them off. But, you know, we're kids, like we would leave our clothes in the field. And so they would collect all the clothes that we left in the field and put them in this box. And then on Saturdays, it would be the Saturday box. And I'd get everybody together and pick up a piece of clothing and whose jacket is this or whose sweater. And then you would have to say that it was yours and you would get paddled in front of everybody. Someone had made a paddle. It's like a wood paddle, like this big. But it was such a normal part of life, the Saturday box. And the Saturday box was always full. Do you know what I mean? Like it didn't make us Stop not doing leave our clothes. Yeah. yeah. Me and a couple of the girls, we would put on like 12 pairs of underwear on Saturdays. And then we would get spanked, but we couldn't really feel it, but they wouldn't know. And <laughs> This little trick may have helped ease the torment momentarily, but it didn't stop it. Guinevere's childhood was a constant state of fear. The devil was going to take over my soul, that I would get in trouble and be isolated. I was kind of constantly scared of being demoted, of being either sent away or shunned. And she was often punished purely because of her place in the pecking order. The thing is that almost every one of the kids was treated in accordance to the status of their parent. So there's also like a replicated hierarchy among the kids. There was kind of like, you know, like Jesse's three kids were obviously more special and magical and all of the Lyman kids were like the top tier kids and so on and so forth. She is referring to Jesse Benton. Remember the painter's daughter? Well, she was no longer just a benefactor of the group, she had actually become Mel's wife. Cult leaders prey on the rich. Look at any cult, Nexium, for example. I almost guarantee a trust funder is right by his or her side. And a trust funder is a perfect target. At times, feeling undeserved of all their wealth, trust fund kids often look for a purpose, a righteous cause to donate their riches to. Because of her mother's lowly status, Guinevere would have been a very low-tier kid. Except for that Daria bought me. Wait, did she say bought her? I think so. What happened was Jesse Benton and Mel Lyman each had a bunch of kids, but they only had one kid together. And her name is Daria, and she was a wild child who just wouldn't behave. And for some reason, I could get her to behave. Daria said to me, like, yeah, I liked you so much, I just asked my mom if I could have you. <laughs> and she said yes. But it was like a great honor, you know what I mean, that I was chosen. And so I kind of moved up in the ranks really quickly. And by the time maybe I was like nine, I had much higher status than my mother. She ain't gonna work on Mel's farm no more. Here he goes. I can't stop him, you guys. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. This episode has everything. I'm sorry. 
It's good, actually. Pretty good. Isabel Batillon, is he? It's not bad. Yeah. All yeah. you need to do is write great lyrics and play guitar and be an icon for a generation. Being in the inner circle of leadership definitely comes with special perks. For one, you get to travel with Jesse, mostly just as a servant to the princess, really. Cinderella just got handed the glass slipper. Hey, if you're going to be in a cult, you might as well be at the top of the food chain, right? But the tricky thing about cult leaders is you never know when they're going to ask for their magic slipper back. And without that, the princess is just a housekeeper in a fancy dress. Join us next week on Was I in a Cult for part two of Guinevere's Remarkable Journey. We were at the kids' house, and then somebody called me. They said, you're wanted at the big house, prestige all the house. Everybody was like, that can't be good. Let's just say it's not your typical getting out story. Also, if you guys like the music in this episode... Oh, they did, Liz. They did. <laughs> I've made a Spotify playlist of all the songs for you. And I made a cassette mixtape. You can find the Spotify link in our show notes. And you can find the cassette tape stuck in the tape deck of my bitchin' Trans Am. Which you don't have. Not yet. I don't think you ever will. Shh. One can dream. Thank you all for listening. And until next week... If you're going to write a book called Autobiography of a World Savior, make, make sure, sure you, you are, are one. Was I in a Cult is story produced and written by Liz Iacuzzi. And me, Tyler Meeson. Executive producer is Maya Cole Howard. Supervising producer is Catherine Burt Canton. Audio editor is Chandler Mays. Additional story producer is Ari Basile. Special thanks to David Brammer. And the Was I in a Cult fan of the week is Denali Calhoun of Alaska. Thank you, Denali, for sharing our stuff with your, your followers. So we get more followers. <laughs> and rule the world. Midnight at the Oasis, put, put your, your camel, to camel to bed, I'll be your midnight dancer, be your midnight prancer, and you can be my chief. That's racist. You can be my chief. <laughs> I didn't write it. Cancel it. Cancel that song. All right. Great.